Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by three experts in the field of historical geography. Dr. Joe Thorogood, a political and historical geographer at Coventry University with a current specialism in mapping and researching public rights of way. Also a former RGS IBG geography ambassador, I'm told. Dr. Phil Wadey, one of the authors of Rights of Way, Restoring the Record, a book aiming to give insight on track rights in the UK. And Jack Cornish, director of the Ramblers Don't Lose Your Way campaign. All three of our guests are here to highlight that by 2026, if our UK footpaths are not registered and used, they will be lost forever. A rather ominous start. My apologies, gentlemen. Uh, I'll begin again. Uh, good morning, everyone. Joe, can I start by asking you to give us a general introduction? Yeah. So, hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Dr. Joe Thorogood, and I'm a lecturer at Coventry, where I teach geography. My research is usually on, on sort of geopolitics, and I do a lot of archival research looking at old diplomatic events. And I came to this sort of issue uh, completely in a, in a very different way. I, I was out running in Worcestershire with my, where my parents live and I came across a, a right-of-way that I hadn't run down before and I, spur of the moment decision, decided to take it. And as I did that, I um, ended up running down towards a track and there was sort of like a, a gap in the fence and a gate and uh, a look, what looked like a very well-worn path. And I was going to take it, but I just I, I didn't feel comfortable. I couldn't see any signs saying it was a right-of-way, so I, I didn't take it. But when I got home, I got out the old OS map and had a look. And I couldn't see it on there, but then I checked OpenStreetMapper, which is like the Wikipedia of Google Maps. So it's like local people adding their own information in. And I could see that somebody had put a, a route there. And at least somebody in the world thought this was a, a, a route that you could walk on. And I think that I typed something like missing maps into, or missing missing footpaths even into into Google and I got to the Ramblers website, the Don't Lose Your Way campaign, which I'm sure Jack's gonna talk about in a moment. Uh, and I sort of started to learn about this, this issue of um, 2026 and, and what's called path you know, extinguishment or, or, or some other names it's got as well. And, I'm, and again, we're gonna get much more detail about that in a moment, but uh, the long and short of it is that on the 1st of January, 2026, any uh, right of way that isn't officially recorded on uh, an official record, what's known as a definitive map of the area, will, will disappear. And for me, as a professional geographer, this is obviously huge implications for the field trips that we run with our students, for accessing research sites in both rural and urban areas. Um, and just to give you a, a couple of stats about um, how important rights of way are, uh, it's estimated and that sort of walkers alone bring something like 6.6 billion pounds to the, to the economy through the shops they use, the routes they do, the places they stay, the equipment they buy. Um, they support 245,000 full-time workers. Uh, equestrian uh, industries, a, a similar amount, around 4.3 billion pounds. And this is really important. And I, I just got very interested in this issue as a geographer. Uh, about what it means and realise that the task of registering and recording and protecting these rights of way before that 2026 deadline seems to have largely fallen to groups like the Ramblers. 
Can we turn to you now, Jack? Um, could you tell us about Path Extinguishment Day? Sure, yeah. So um, I lead the Don't Lose Your Way uh, programme at the Ramblers. And essentially what we're trying to do is to find, is to support volunteers across the country. And that's members of the Ramblers, but also any member of the public who wants to help out um, with finding and uh, researching and claiming historic rights of way. Um, now, the Path Extinction Day is really crucial because it's the 1st of January 2026. So we've got just over five years um, to find these lost rights of way and to submit applications to the relevant local authorities to actually put them back on the map. And it's important that they are recorded on the definitive map, because if a right of way is if one of these historic rights of way is not um, applied for by that date, then we can't apply for it based on that historical evidence. And I think at this stage, it's really crucial to say that what we're talking about here, this isn't about creating new rights of way. These are rights of way that exist because they have existed historically. And this is about recording them. So this is part of our sort of shared collective rights that we need to record um, so we can uh, so we can protect them for the future. And so, you know, we've got a walking and cycling and, and riding network that makes sense, you know, way into the future. And at the Ramblers, we we recently, um, the Don't Lose Your Way programme has been going for a couple of years, but we launched a big campaign uh, at the beginning of this year uh, where we basically um, created this crowdsourcing tool and we split uh, England and Wales, because this only applies to England and Wales, up into about 154,000 square kilometre squares. And we so basically, we asked the public to have a look at those squares, uh, one at a time, and they basically were shown uh, the current OS map and a couple of historical maps uh, from about um, 120 years ago. And we did a big spot of difference. You know, can you see an old footpath on the old OS map that isn't currently recorded on, on the current map or even an old road that was recorded historically but doesn't exist now? And, um, yeah, we had an amazing response. And in six weeks, the public stepped forward and we, we managed to look at every single square twice to look for those lost rights of way. And um, we're going through the data now, but it looks like we found at least 40,000 miles of lost rights of way through that exercise and to put that into context there's about 140,000 miles already recorded so this is a big chunk of the network that's missing and, it, and that probably didn't even collect anything everything as well so you know it's a big issue as we lead up to uh, path extinguishment day in, in 2026. That's amazing that's a huge figure there. Yeah yeah it's it is it is amazing and I don't think we can pretend that we can claim every single one of those or actually that we want to what what for me this is about is creating a better walking cycling and riding network and a network that makes much more sense you know the ramblers are not saying we want to claim if there's a crossfield path and there's another one that was there historically on a slightly different alignment that goes to the same place you know there's i don't think that'd be the biggest priority but in large parts of the country we've got a network that doesn't make complete sense we've got paths that stop in the middle of nowhere um, we've got whole parishes that are pretty bereft um, of rights of way. And we've got, you know, uh, uh, for some users of the rights of way network, we've got massively unrecorded rights of way. So we've got things that probably should be uh, bridleways that are recorded as footpaths or, or things that change status in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, this is about making a, a network that, that makes sense into the future. I think. And that's brought through your campaign, Don't Lose Your Way. Is that right, Jack? That's the title of the campaign. Yeah, the Don't Lose Your Way campaign, yeah. So as I say, this is about getting everyone across the country um, 
you know, we want to inspire people to really get involved with this because these are our part of our collective rights that we want to save. And um, I know we've got we've got Phil here who's been researching uh, public rights of way for years. And um, I'd be interested to know, Phil, um, how do you think we got to the place where we, you know, we might lose hundreds, if not thousands of miles of, of rights of way? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I'll, um, I'll I'll just outline, uh, you know, some of the steps that, that led us to here. But first, I was just going to say, as everyone else has introduced themselves, my I got involved in paths um, because... When I was riding my horse after school, so when I was actually, I think, 16 or 17, um, I found a notice on a bridleway I used that said it was going to be closed. And uh, I objected. And the local British Horse Society lady found my letter of objection in the council files as this was being processed and decided to recruit me as a volunteer. And I've been doing it ever since. So that's, you know, more than 30 years of of access work there now. And uh, it's all terribly important because the particular path that got me interested and, and starting to look at how, how paths got recorded and, and, and why, why they were important took all the riders and the walkers and cyclists off a really dangerous road, a twisty road uh, in the middle of nowhere, perhaps, but, but cars went far too fast down there. And we could get into the field and cross the field. And it was a farm track anyway. It wasn't actually you know taking up croppable land so so it worked out really well and the path was saved but I've been hooked since and doing the research to to prove rights of way and then actually getting them on the map in the end is is really good fun and I I, I look forward to getting my various applications processed by the different councils that are doing it the story of of um, recording paths really started in the 1940s, um, the government was worried, you know, just, well, late 1940s, after the um, Second World War, the government had noticed that people were being far more mobile than they had been previously. Um, and, you know, general continuation of the trend of, of moving towards towns and away from the countryside for, for large parts of the population. And they were worried at the time about the effect on public rights of way. Because when you've got a fairly static population, everybody just knows where all the paths are. They're brought up, they see other people walking them, they're brought up in the area, they, they, you know, they, they see their parents or their friends or other people in the village walking paths, and so they know where the paths are. But once everyone's really mobile, then... You move to a new area and you don't know whether that's the farmer walking that path or whether it's the public walking that path. And, and so gradually things get used less. And if there's any opposition to using paths or if the land manager is trying to get people off his land for some reason, um, then they can very quickly fall into disuse. So the government set up a committee and it was, it was chaired by Arthur Hobhouse and it reported back in 1947, and it's called the Hobhouse Report. And the most important finding that, that they had was what they said was, we consider that it is essential that a complete survey shall be put in hand forthwith so that an authoritative record of rights of way in the, this country may be prepared before it is too late. So that was the conclusion after their investigations. 
And as a result, Parliament created legislation for what became the definitive map of rights of way. And that was in the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act, 1949. And the date 1949 there is very important, and we'll come back to that. So in the 1949 Act, this asked each county council, or what we would now call a unitary authority in, in some places, to go out and survey its area and to present its proposals for the paths that needed recording in what was known as the draft map. Now, county councils you know, cover a large area, so they delegated a lot of the early surveying. So parish councils were asked to make returns to say where they thought the paths were. Um, but in some areas, they would get the local walking groups or the scouts or the youth hostels association or something to also do a survey. And they would try and collect what evidence they could um, of paths existing. Now, of course, from my point of view as a rider, I note that 1950s were riding was at an all time low in England and Wales. Um, a lot of horses just couldn't be afforded at the time. And, and it was much less riding going on then than, than it is now. So we believe that a lot of bridleways were missed because there was nobody riding them at the time. When the draft map was published, anyone could object to it. So it would be advertised in the local paper and it would be made available for inspection. Once objections were made, the county had to have a, a mechanism um, for resolving them. So they, they would talk to the, the objectors and they might need to have a, a hearing um, to, to resolve the matter one way or another, make sure the evidence was good enough for the path to be recorded. And at the end, when it had finished that process, it would publish the provisional map. When that happened, there was a further period of time where only the landowner or occupier could object and he could go to the court and say there isn't a path here and have it struck off. And when all of that process had finished... The end of this, the final map was then published, and that was the definitive map. Now, the original legislation said councils would do this every five years, a five-yearly review of, of their definitive maps to make sure they'd taken account of um, any changes. There might have been a diversion or something of a path, and that needed to be reflected on the definitive maps. They would update at five-yearly intervals. But very few councils managed this. So later on, as it was more honoured in the breach than actually, the system was changed again. So in 1981, the Wildlife and Countryside Act, uh, which is the current main statute for, for definitive map work, was passed. And that enabled, instead of doing a five-yearly review of the county, instead to do a review of a path one at a time as, as it became realised that a change was needed. So then we roll forward to 2000. The Countryside and Rights of Way Act set the cut-off day, which we call Path Extinguishment Day, for adding footpaths and bridleway rights, which existed before 1949. So what, what Parliament was saying was, well, you've had all this time, you've had 50 years to record your paths, so can't you just sort of finish it, please? Because it's a very long and painful process at times. And so they gave us, uh, initially they were going to give us 10 years, but they gave 25 years, which takes us up to 20, 1st of January 2026, um, to finish recording anything that existed before 1949 as a matter of law, but wasn't written down. 
And so that's that's where we get the path extinguishment date from. That's an incredible fifty-year uh, um, effort from people like yourself. Um, what's changed from record the recording paths when a missing one is spotted scheme? The important thing here is that very often paths are in use every day and nobody's taking any notice of them. Um, and you know, for the, I'd say for the first fifteen years that I was doing this sort of work, first fifteen or twenty years. We only applied for paths to be recorded when somebody questioned them. So like there'd be a new landowner, land would change hands, somebody would come in or a new land agent on some of the estates and they'd say, oh, this path isn't written down, I'll close it. And then, of course, all the people who were using it would be up in arms saying, but, but that's our path. And we'd have to go through the process of recording it. And sometimes a path might be closed for a while until your application had gone all the way through the council's processes and been added to the definitive map. The Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981 has a section that says the definitive map is proof of what it shows, but is without prejudice as to the rights it doesn't show. So the idea behind that section, it's section 56 of the Act, was that if something is on the definitive map, it's definitely you have those rights but it's open to the fact that there's lots of rights not recorded. And I think it's because we always had that fallback that the definitive map couldn't be used to say you don't have a right. It just meant that you'd have to prove it each time, that people didn't really worry about recording paths that, that weren't written down. And of course, now with the Path Extinguishment Day looming, we will have to record things, even paths that are in use every day, uh, by lots of people. So every single one of these routes needs an application unless the government changes the rules. So um, all the user groups, like the Ramblers, the British Horse Society and the Open Spaces Society, are now working really hard to make um, applications to record paths as best they can. Um, I wonder, Jack, would, would you tell us more about the Ramblers' uh, plans at the moment? Sure, yeah. I mean, as you say, it, the Ramblers um, Don't Lose Your Way campaign is, is you know, we want to get um, as many people involved in this as possible, um, uh, claiming the, their rights and uh, improving access to the countryside and to towns and cities and suburban areas as well. Um, you know, as you said, we're not the only ones. This is a collective effort with um, lots of different types of people who want to access the countryside, you know, and, and many Ramblers will be claiming routes that aren't just for walkers there for cyclists and, and horse riders as well in terms of those future plans off the back of our of our recent sort of crowdsourcing to uh, to see how many routes there are lost uh, potentially we are planning to basically build more digital tools that will enable people to then go from well this is a potential lost right of way to actually doing that research and um, being able to submit an application to a local authority. And this is, you know, building off of amazing work that's already happening. You know, in the Ramblers, we've got groups of volunteers in certain parts of the country have done an amazing amount of work already. And obviously that's the same in the British Horse Society and Open Spaces Society. It's also hopefully building off the work in your book as well. Um, you know, so it, it's basically just about expanding that out and getting more people involved with it. And, um, you know, we're keen to engage with a wide variety of groups that want to to make a difference to, to the access in their local area. So, 
that's not just walking groups or, or cycling groups, but that's also um, local historians, parish councils, you know, Women's Institute, U3A. We're keen to, to just really engage with anyone that, that wants to help us safeguard these paths going forward. So, um, you know, people can go to the Don't Use Your Way page on the Ramblers website, sign up to hear more. And as we develop more of those tools and training over over the, ne- over the coming months, you know, people can, can get involved more as, as we go forward. So, Joe, we've heard about the, the history of public rights of way from Phil and the, the future um, plans from the Ramblers, from Jack. What remains to be done uh, in your eyes? So, yeah, with it, I think we, we get the sense that there's a lot of paths that need uh, sort of recording and there's a lot of work to be done up and down the country. So, you know, I started doing some definitive map modification orders work and you know my first instance was to to get the book uh, get phil and sarah sarah box's book uh, phil's co-author sarah and phil both then met with me and we we chatted a bit about the applications and they really helped me but of course there's just not enough phil's and sarah's in the world to go around and 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 help the whole country do this so what we've been doing is devising a series of uh, online videos we got some funding from coventry university to and basically provide online uh, resources that train people how to do this themselves. So just to give you an example of what that looks like, we're currently working on a video uh, of tithe maps. So what we'll do in that is explain what a tithe map is, uh, we'll explain what its purpose was, and we'll explain how you can find them, where you find them, whether they're online or offline, and then how you use a tithe map to show evidence of a right-of-way's existence. And then you can uh, use that bit of evidence, you can take photographs of it, you can copy it, and you can put it inside a definitive map modification order. So that's one of the things we're doing, is is starting to create videos for the general public or anybody who's got specific application questions who needs needs a bit of help understanding the evidence. You know, I've done a lot of archival research as part of my PhD anyway, so this is something I teach at Coventry anyway. We're also looking at the role that satellite data might play. So one of my uh, colleagues at Coventry, Dr. Charlie Hill Butler, is is looking into the role of uh, satellite data and whether or not we can use that to spot paths and paths we might have missed, whether or not we can determine what sorts of rights of way exist in an area. Is it a bridal way if we use certain satellite overlays and filters? Uh, It's very speculative research at the moment. It's it's by no means a, a, a sort of exact science, but we're looking into that too. And we're also trying to write a paper for one of the uh, RGS's, Royal Geographical Society's journals, the Transactions of the Institute of British Geographers, putting a paper together to get more geographers involved in this issue uh, as well. Because as the other guys have mentioned, this is an issue that's going to require, as it stands, uh, a national effort up and down the country. So the more we can do to get people confident and knowledgeable and able to put the kind of, you know, the cartographic and geographic evidence to use in in these application forms, uh, the more quickly we'll get the applications in the system. Phil, do you want to talk a little bit about the most important pieces of evidence to look for when you're doing rights-of-way research, if you want to find evidence of a right-of-way's historic existence? Yes, thanks, Joe. I always start with with four principal um, sources. Uh, I like to look at the sort of the maps that were sold to the travelling public before the Ordnance Survey started selling maps. So typically late 1700s, early 1800s. But some of the surveyors there were, were actually really advanced. And because they were selling their maps to the travelling public, 
you could expect that they would be predominantly or exclusively showing public rights of way and not just tracks to somewhere that, that you couldn't use. Because people would be pretty annoyed if they'd ridden halfway across the county um, and then found that they, they couldn't go where they needed to and had to deviate for a, a long distance back then. Uh, so pre, pre-ordnance survey commercial maps are, are really good. The next ones are the tithe maps. And the tithe maps were created really to make administration of collection of tithes for the church easier. So to start with, if you had land, you generally had to provide a tenth of the value of whatever you produced to the vicar or the rector of the church. But that might literally be, you know, three pigs and four bales of hay. And because that wasn't very convenient for the church, and it certainly wasn't convenient for the people farming the land. So it turned out to be much better to create a monetary value that, that would apply instead of a tenth of the produce. So the Tithe Acts in the 1800s enabled agreements to be reached, setting out what the monetary payments would be. But the interesting thing here is that the, the tithe maps will show each parcel of land and who owns it and who had to pay how much to the church. And very often roads wouldn't actually produce anything. So they would be shown with a zero value. And as part of drawing up the tithe maps and the what we call the apportionment document that goes with it, which is apportioning the tithes, very often old roads and things would be listed as roads and Hence, there would be no no charge. Occasionally, you'd have wide grass roads that could sort of be grazed overnight, perhaps on long droving routes, and they may have attracted a tithe charge. But all the the stoned ones, the ones with surfaces and, and particularly narrow routes, probably wouldn't attract a tithe at all. So this is all good evidence. The third one I like, um, the enclosure awards. So enclosure was a process where actually what used to be common land um, or or if not common land as we understand it now, but certainly land held in common of uh, many parishioners for for grazing and and what have you, uh, that was divided up and allocated to uh, landholders. And very often if somebody owned various pieces of land in the parish, they would end up with fields all adjacent to one another. And through a process of swapping, other landowners would end up with their land consolidated. And the enclosure process um, had the power to stop up rights of way and roads and set out new ones. And because it was all pursuant to an act of parliament, the resulting setup of the paths that were laid out carries a very strong evidential weight and you can read the, the enclosure award for a parish or area, um, and it will say, you know, we set out four public carriage roads and list them and explain where they go to and three bridleways, and then it would start talking about drainage or who's getting which field and, and what have you. But there would be a section on roads and rights of way. So they're really good pieces of evidence. The last one I like to get started is the Inland Revenue Maps The Finance Act in 1910 enabled or required the Inland Revenue to value every piece of land 
in the United Kingdom. Um, so obviously we're only interested in England and Wales here, but, but the Inland Revenue had to go out and value everything. And the government of the day was planning to charge tax on how much your land had gone up in value, and they were going to attribute it to, um, well, they must have done something locally, like built a school or put in some amenities, which has caused your land to increase in value, so they'll have their cut of it, please. So <laughs> this was not very popular. Was, uh, the government got voted out and the following government repealed it straight away. But all the records are there. And uh, what we can see here is they valued each piece of land. They would leave roads. Typically, we call them white roads because they wouldn't be coloured in as part of one of the hereditaments, which is what the land parcels were called. So white roads are strong evidence that, that something's a, a an old road, so it might be a restricted byway today. And also, there was a discount on the valuation if you had a footpath or bridleway crossing your land. So the book, the field books, which are held at the National Archives in Kew, list for each hereditament which deductions were allowed. And so if a landholding has taken a deduction for having a footpath or a bridleway across his field, then he would have been liable to less tax had this system stayed in place for very long. And of course, the Inland Revenue doesn't like people defrauding it. So the penalty for giving false information to the Inland Revenue at the time was up to six months hard labour. So I generally take it that if somebody's claimed a discount and it was allowed, then that probably means there's a path there. So these are all really good pieces of evidence. And any other sources of evidence, certainly in the book, we've got, I don't know, over 20 pieces of evidence that might be looked at. The other ones are triggered by seeing that, for example, the path crosses the parish boundary. So then you'd look, like to look at parish boundary records or there's a railway crossing the, the path you think needs recording. And then you'd go and look at the railway records and so on. So but these four give, give a really good start to getting going. So, Jack, there sounds like there's a lot of evidence if people choose to find it to try and protect our public rights of way and our footpaths in the UK. Um, is there any possibility of changing or delaying the deadline? Yeah, so the original legislation that uh, Phil talked about earlier on um, from 2000 actually has the ability for the, um, the path extinguishment day, the cutoff day, to be, to be delayed by up to five years. So that doesn't actually require any additional primary legislation. At the Ramblers, we're, we've, you know, we've called on the government to do that and we've had some constructive conversations because of the size of the issue, because of the amount of work there is to do, the size of, of what we're missing in terms of, of being unrecorded um, is, is massive. And so you know, this is our one-time opportunity to make sure that these paths are recorded for future generations. And so we are really keen that at the very least, that, that deadline is delayed by five years. So we can actually get this right. And, you know, we can make sure these are recorded to, for, for, for everyone to use way into the future. And could you remind everyone what the current deadline is and the five-year delay would, where it would take it to? Yeah, so the, the current deadline is the 1st of January 2026. So, um, you know, the Ramblers, we think that it should be the 1st of January 2031. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, considering these paths, a lot of them go back hundreds of years. That's not that long still, but it gives us, you know, a significant more time to make sure that we're, 
that we get this right and that we we put as many of these lost rights of way back on the map as possible. Just to finish, can I ask all of you uh, why this is such an important issue in a slightly broader sense? Why are paths so important as a part of our history and our future? Well, I, I, if I may, I answer that now with my sort of academic hat on. Um, you know, at Coventry, one of the things we, we try and teach our students is that when you think about a landscape, you've got to think about it as something that's had different processes happening on it. And I just think there is so much scope and potential here to not just protect these paths but to teach people about the cultural and historical heritage and the stories that they tell you know there's once you start digging into the tithe maps to enclosure awards to the old inland revenue records or you know old os maps you start to get jigsaw pieces that tell you about how our landscape sort of changed over time and, and, and how people have used it and you know we learn why a right of way was established or where it went and who it connected. And it's just such a great way to increase the kind of, you know, the, the cartographic and geographical literacy of the public. And I just think it's such a wonderful way of telling an exciting story about the sort of the landscapes that we that we love so much. And I think from from my perspective, um, sort of picking up Joe's point about about the history there, is that, you know, these are part of our shared collective history. And if you think about it, the, the vast majority of the paths that we're talking about that are unrecorded and the ones that are recorded um, came about through usage. They came about through our ancestors walking to the village pub or to the or going to the market every week or or, or going to work in the field. And so, you know, for me, they're, they're as much a part of that shared collective history as Iron Age hill forts or cathedrals or castles, you know, and actually... I, I think there's something really amazing about them because they're part of that ordinary history. You know, they're not the history in most cases of of grand houses or of um, kings and queens. They're the history of sort of ordinary people and how they've interacted with the landscape over centuries and millennia. Yeah, I, I, I would go for, um, I, I suppose, four things spring to mind for why this work's important um, or saving paths is important. I think... Firstly, safety. Certainly with horses, you know, we're, we're much happier with um, off-road riding to being on the roads. Far too many people screeching around in fast cars or cars faster than the speed limits anyway. Um, and, and it really is nice to, to get off the road and, and be able to worry slightly less. There's the mental health aspect, you know, who, who doesn't enjoy going for a walk or ride or cycle in, in, in nice, pleasant um, surroundings. And I suppose there's the climate change aspect, that the more non-motorised routes that we preserve and enable people to use, then maybe that gets people out of their cars just a little bit more, and, and that might help with, with the climate change crisis. And, and the last one, of course, is just as the enclosures removed an awful lot of land from parishioners, um, and, and put it into private ownership. The Path Extinguishment Day will do exactly the same today. And people who have who have got paths at the end of their gardens um, or at, at the end of their fields as appropriate will find that they're able to close those paths if they're unrecorded and take that land into their field or garden as appropriate. And this is public property that's just being given away because somebody didn't put it on a map. And I'm very keen to make sure the maps are as good as they can be for that reason. 
Yeah, I think um, if I can go in here as well again, I think picking up on a couple of Phil's points there, I mean, you know, we've seen recently that people are, you know, because of, of lockdown and, and, and things like that, people are exploring their local areas much more. And that importance of that hyper-local network, if we want to tackle some of the big challenges of, of this century, I suppose, you know, chronic health conditions and, you know, if we want to encourage active travel, we want to encourage people um, rely less on motor travel surely having a better path network and a more complete path network you know is for the good thank you all for joining us today it's been so insightful to understand the history and the the future of our public rights of way i really hope this galvanizes people to record and save our public footpaths thank you again thank you thank you thank you thanks for listening if you like this podcast please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.